Because maybe for you, opposition, you can kind of picture it as anything that threatens your personal goals in life. And so maybe you're pursuing after something in life, maybe it's self-driven, but you're pursuing after something. And so opposition for you is anything that can come and try to direct, uh, direct your attention away from that. You know, what you aspire for, what you desire personally. But my prayer is that this morning, whether we are whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you are not a follower of Jesus, that we will all come to a place to see that Jesus has a life that is so much better for each of you. That Jesus offers a life where he relieves you of this pressure of laboring alone. He relieves you of this pressure of striving alone in your own strength to find favor and purpose. And, and he allows you to live for something so much greater than just your own individual life by being able to come to a place of truly resting in the life that Jesus longs for you to experience. And so as we talk about opposition this morning, it is actually an invitation. It's an invitation this morning for us all to find truth in who Jesus says that he was and is, and then to find what that means for us in life, how this impacts how we do life. And so my prayer this morning is that through this text, God will reveal to us three foundational things this morning that are just going to kind of serve as an overarching uh, theme. Now, we'll address these each, each point individually, but I want you to kind of let this be the framework that we're going to hang the truths of the text this morning. First of all, my prayer is that God will give us a better, more biblical perspective of opposition and suffering in the Christian life. And you and I will understand a little better the definition of, of what it means to suffer well, what it means to handle opposition in a Christ-like manner. How does it mean? What does it mean to, to, to experience it, to expect it, and then to have a proper understanding of opposition? That we're no longer in a place where we're saying, why are you doing this, God? This is not a good, loving, just God that will allow this to happen, but we see from a biblical perspective what opposition is. Second, I hope that we'll see that God will reveal to us ways in which we may be turning to other things other than God for our comfort as we walk through a fallen world of opposition. Now for you this morning, maybe God just wants to expose in your heart things that you are turning to for, uh, for strength, things that you are turning to for comfort other than Him. You may be claim to be a follower of Jesus, and you may be walking faithfully with Him, but yet you're finding ways in which you are leaning on other things to provide comfort in this life. And finally, I, want, I pray that God will reveal to us ultimately that He is our only refuge. That Jesus is our only refuge. And so as we pursue after Him in life, I pray that we will see Him as our hope and our shelter, our strength to help to endure the storms of life that may come our way. So I, I kind of want that to be an overarching definition of what we're talking about when we're looking at opposition in the context of Nehemiah and how this relates to each of us in our own personal walls. Now, as you, if you've been here the last two weeks, we've been walking through this story of Nehemiah, that, and I don't want to go back through the, all the historical account, but I do want to just remind us what's taking place here, that, that, that the, the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, has been just scattered. There are they tribes that they, they have split between the north and the south, and, and eventually we've seen that they have been war after war, in which Israel has seen further and further defeat until ultimately Persia arises as a powerhouse that, 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 that takes over this, this kingdom. And they are, everything is under the rule of Persia. And so in Jerusalem, and God's chosen people are seeing that their city is completely destroyed. The walls around the city have been completely destroyed. The church has been completely 
destroyed. The gates that protected the, the citizens of Jerusalem had been completely destroyed. And so the people of God had been scattered all over the place. So they are now just scattered. They're, the worship of God had basically ceased in the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah's heart, Nehemiah, you know, is 800 miles away at this time now. But he has inquired about his people. And he has inquired about what's taking place in the city. And he hears the brokenness. And he is heavily, heavily convicted. His heart is broken for the city. And it's not just because of a sentimental attachment to a place. This is not just remorse for his hometown. This is a brokenness because of the fact that they were bringing shame to God through the way that they, they, they were allowing this place to lie in ruins, that God's glory had been diminished in this particular setting. On chapter 1, we read that Nehemiah prays for four months. That before he moves into action, he prays for four months. He prays and fasts and mourns for the glory of God to be restored to the city. And then last week, we looked in chapter 2 about how his prayers led to action. So in this particular situation, Nehemiah did not just say, let me leverage where I'm at in my particular situation in order to ask the king to provide money, and I'll just kind of hang tight here. But he says, no, I want to go. Will you, will you allow me to go back and rebuild the walls of my city? And he asked this king who has basically, has, through multiple wars, has now has dominion over the city. And now Nehemiah is saying, will you let me go and rebuild the city? And he finds favor because he said the good hand of the Lord was on him. And so we see that he demonstrates... He's demonstrated for us the traits that should characterize the actions of a servant of Christ. That if we're going to be a servant who prays and seeks God as broken for people, that we will act, that we will be an active part of restoring His kingdom. And so this morning, we're going to see the first opposition that Nehemiah will face while carrying out his plan. I find it quite interesting that there are two chapters centered around prayer in multiple contexts. We're going to see that prayer continues to be a theme throughout Nehemiah. There are two chapters centered around prayer. There is one chapter where Nehemiah is actually preparing to do the work, where it defines his actual methodology to do the work. One chapter. And yet then we're going to have about three and a half chapters going forward that are going to deal with opposition. So in this book, we have an influence on prayer, a little bit of an insight into a plan, but then three and a half chapters dealing with how we handle opposition. So I feel God wants to teach us something in, in this particular book of Nehemiah about, uh, he wants to teach us that if you're really trying to live faithfully as God's children, that opposition is going to come your way. But sandwiched in between chapter 2 on the action of Nehemiah and chapter 4, where we're going to look this morning at the opposition that they will face, is chapter 3. Now, chapter 3, at the surface of Nehemiah, seems about as exciting of a read as an accounting textbook. Because it is basically just a list of names of those who work on the wall with Nehemiah. It is just a, a list of names. And so for the sake of not uh, uh, allowing you to, uh, to hear my poor pronunciation of each name, I will let you remember that on your own. But there's basically 38 individual workers in chapter 3 that are, that are listed by name. 38 workers, and with an additional, around 42 additional people named. So there's an entire chapter in the story of Nehemiah where God details the people who are doing the work of the wall. Now most of us would take this chapter, and I'm very, I would guess that very few of you did your, your quad time this morning in Nehemiah chapter 3. You would just kind of skip over that. 
But I want us to see before we just skip through chapter 3 that this is a list of around 80 names of Jews who came from all over with various backgrounds and various trades and various skills, but all came together to unite for the building of the wall. Over 80 names that to us may seem very insignificant and very faceless, but to God are significant and faithful enough that he would etch their names into this story in his word forever. He would detail out the names of the people. And their role was to construct a wall around the city. Construct a wall around the city. But now this was not just a Saturday afternoon project. Just building a fence in your neighbor's backyard. They're not sipping lemonade while they casually build this fence. This wall was massive. It was 15 to 20 feet high. All right, now picture this. 15 to 20 feet high, anywhere from 4 to 9 feet thick. Close to two and a half miles around. And it has been broken down for 141 years. The city was destroyed. Not just worn down from neglect, not just needing a facelift. It was destroyed and lying in rubble. And so, one thing that is re emphasized in chapter 3 over and over is the diversity of the people that worked. But yet, there was a unifying factor of them all. And I believe this sheds such light to the body of Christ that there's such diversity, but yet a unifying factor. We see that each person working on the wall had a purpose. They were diverse from different tribes, but they had a strong desire to see the shame of their city restored and the glory of God restored. We also see the importance of joining together, I think, through this as the corporate body of Christ to complete the task. Just as the different tribes worked on different aspects of the restoration, we must also link arms together both with each other and with the other, the corporate, the universal body of Christ with other churches to seek to rebuild the city within the city. But together, they were only concerned about one thing, and that was the glory of the Lord. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may be no more a reproach. He says, Let's rebuild the wall so that we may be no more a reproach. They didn't just want, they, they didn't want to be a disgrace or a condemnation. Their ultimate goal was not just protection for the city, but for the glory of God. And so we see chapter 3 as it, as it details out the people who did each, each particular task. Well, then we get to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, just like with any great work that we do for God, difficult times and challenges will surface as we seek to serve Him. It is inevitable. We first met the opposers to the work of Nehemiah in chapter 2, verse 10, when we talked about Samuel and Tobiah. They were a major, major drag to the project. I mean, these are the negative people. You know, they blogged about what they didn't like about everything. Negative Facebook statuses, always confrontational. These were those kind of people. They didn't like anything. They were so strongly opposed to the rebuilding of a God-worshipping city that they had been organizing troops to fight against the cause. Now for us, we know these kind of people. Those who seem to always have a dark cloud over their heads that find something wrong with everything. You know, if you don't know anybody like that, you know, maybe you are that someone. I don't know. Uh, but but those, there are those of us who fit that description. They, 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 they just have this negative thought. 
you know, about what was taking place. You know, for some of you, maybe, uh, you know, you haven't been able to concentrate because the temperature isn't quite right in here, or I preach too long, or whatever it may be. But these two were like that. They were just negative. They didn't like to see constructive things taking place. No matter what, they were just negative to anything positive. And so we see from this that, and I think we see that in our life as we walk, we all know those situations and people that we've encountered in our walk with Christ. But we see that opposition and trials are something that we will face as followers of Christ. I wish I could tell you that you will walk with Christ and you will pursue Christ and never encounter any difficulty and opposition. But I can actually only promise you the opposite, that you're going to experience it. John 16.33 says that in this world, we will have trouble. It doesn't say you may. It doesn't say hopefully you won't. It says in this world, we will have trouble. But the glorious truth is that it ends by saying you can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. So we have hope, but yet there's the inevitable that we will face Opposition. Job, the book of Job is about nothing but trial after trial after trial after trial of a servant of God. A man who was righteous, but yet he experiences trial after trial after trial. He loses everything. Charles Spurgeon once said that God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without trial. We know that even Jesus encountered trials and temptations. So as we walk with God and serve Him, we're going to see that we will face trials and opposition. Sometimes adversity will come in the form of opposition. You'll have the semblance and Toby is in your life. Sometimes it will come in the form of trials. You'll have a Job experience. But this morning, I want us to read and I want us to see how they are working through in chapter 4. And we're going to just read it in its entirety. And I want to draw some, some points out of this this morning that I think will be beneficial to us. So let's read in chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. And I want us just to walk through this, this account together. So uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, join me in verse 1. It says, Now when Samuel had heard, Nehemiah said, When Samuel had heard that they were building the wall, he was angry, and he was greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Toby the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yeah, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, this is Nehemiah, for we are despised. Turn back their tongue on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had mind to work. But when Samuel and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And so they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, listen, Jews, other Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, 
you must return to us. In verse 13, Nehemiah, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I station the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of him. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall each to his word. And so from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears and the shields and the bows and the coats of men. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. And so we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our, took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. What a story. You see the opposition they were experiencing, but they labored. So what do we learn from this this morning? There's several truths that we learned this morning. First of all, as you and I deal with adversity, as we deal with adversity in serving God, we're going to make some foundational truths we learned from this Nehemiah chapter 4 that are very prevalent to our lives. First of all, is what I said earlier. First of all, that opposition is expected. Opposition is expected. Samuel and Tobias strike again. And this time, their emotions were more intense and they not only privately mocked at the work that was taking place, but now publicly they voiced their issues with the project. They saw the productivity of what is taking place in restoring Jerusalem, and it infuriated them. It drove them crazy that there was progress happening. For years and years, they probably offered very little discouragement towards the rebuilding effort, because guess what? No rebuilding had been taking place. It had been lying in ruins for 141 years. But now they are attacking with snide questions. Whether they can complete the project. Whether it's even a feasible plan. Many believe that his remarks not only spoke to the actual physical construction and restoration of the wall, but that they actually even pointed toward the broader issues of whether Israel could ever truly reestablish its identity. Whether it could really establish its, reestablish its nationalism honoring this ritual and the presence of the worship of God there. Could this ever really happen? This is what they're accusing and, 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 and insinuating to the people of Israel. As we look at our lives, as we face opposition in our service towards God, be encouraged because opposition only occurs for those who are actually doing something. Opposition occurs when we are actually doing something threatening. To be opposed. 
There are many out there who will go their entire life without ever facing any type of criticism or opposition as they serve the Lord. Now we've already established that God said in this life you will have trouble. And I think he not only means that we will have circumstantial issues, but I think what we see there is that as we go to serve the Lord, we will face opposition. When Jesus spoke of sending out his servants, he would say he was, it was like sending the lambs out of, uh, among the wolves. It was like sending, uh, he, he said, he prayed that as he sent us out, that he knew it was sending us out into a tough terrain. He says that you know, they will hate you because they hated me. So we see that as we go out as a people of God, we will face criticism and opposition. I believe that the reason that we as Christians often in the Western world don't experience spiritual warfare seen in other parts of the globe is because there is no spirit-led movement by which opposition is needed. That we have failed to see that we are on a mission empowered by the Holy Spirit. We do not see the war that we are in as spiritual in nature. We do not have an urgency and a hunger to be led by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit and directed by the Holy Spirit to where a spiritual opposition is not needed. That maybe, just maybe, we aren't a threat to the kingdom of darkness. I pray that you and I will work diligently like Nehemiah, fully expecting resistance because God is on the move. The glorious thing is that He is victorious. But yet you and I, we must labor, we must, must go at it knowing that opposition will happen in our lives. I love the quote that Theodore Roosevelt said. He said, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. He said, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, but who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does exactly strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. God calls us to take risks for the kingdom. And even though we may face opposition, when you are doing something for the glory of God, be ready because opposition will come. As the people of Israel were slowly bringing up out of the rubble of the wall, the opposition heightened and became more intense and physical, not just verbal anymore. So when, when we look this morning, we know that opposition occurs by people you know, who, 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 who are Samuel and Tobia, they were just feeling threatened. So opposition came in the midst of that. So I, church, I encourage you this morning, if God is using you and working through your life, others who perhaps aren't experiencing the same type of presence of God in their life may see you as a threat. Keep working hard for God. Don't stop because you face opposition. Opposition is inevitable. It will occur. But we see a second thing here. And this is Nehemiah beating the same drum over and over. That is number two, that prayer is essential. You can pretty much every, every uh, topic that we take week by week in Nehemiah, just pencil that one in, okay? Nehemiah is going to say over and over and over and over that prayer is absolutely essential. 
Look back at verse 4. He says, in the midst of opposition, we've seen him in the midst of brokenness, we've seen him in the midst of planning, we've seen him in the midst of trusting as he went before the king, and now we see him in the midst of opposition. He says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Nehemiah is certain that they are doing what God has called them to do. And he says, in essence, God, we just handle these guys. We know what you've called us to do, so we know it's going to, you're going to be faithful. So will you take care of the opposers? Will you handle it? It took about 52 days to rebuild the wall. But they prayed for over four months. Ephesians 6.18 says to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. If you look back at verse 9 of chapter 4, Nehemiah says that we pray to our God. And we set guards of protection against them day and night. I cannot overemphasize the power of prayer in the wall with God. This is a reoccurring theme in Nehemiah. So I ask you, are you praying and seeking God daily? Are you praying and seeking Him? Now, I don't mean solely in asking him to give you direction on things. Because he asks us to, he asks us to pray in that respect, to come to him and say, God, I need help in the sermon in this. But are you praying to God to truly know God? To truly sit in his presence and, and, and be in his presence and just spend time with God? Praising him for his goodness, worshiping him for his faithfulness. Thanking Him for His love that never ends. Praying for others. Interceding for your brothers and sisters. But truly, at the end of the day, just truly communing with Him. You pray persistently like that. A.W. Tozer once said this, When we sing, draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, we are not thinking of the nearness of a place, but of the nearness of a relationship. It is for increasing degrees of awareness that we pray, for a more perfect consciousness of the divine presence. We need never shout across the spaces to an absent God. He is nearer than our own soul and closer than our most secret thoughts. May you and I pray with such a conviction that our conversation with Christ is so vital to our daily life as the air that we breathe, and it is so vital to the mission that when opposition occurs, we are in such deep fellowship and communion with God that we are not rattled and shaken. But we say, God, I know that you're going to be victorious when you handle the opposition. We see a third thing, and that is discouragement is inevitable. There will come discouragement as well. I want to spend just a, a few moments in this because we see, beginning around verse 10, we see that there were different levels of discouragement that were taking place. First of all, there, there was self-imposed doubt. We see that in verse 10. It says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. So in the own, their own country, their own people, they were beginning to see this self-imposed doubt. Those working on the law had began to see themselves as losing heart. They were becoming weary. Now this was a cool thing at first. This rather with Nehemiah, he's given this brave heart moment, and he led the charge, but now the work is just hard. It's difficult. There's so much rubble, and the Jews are so stressed. 
and they are overwhelmed with the task before them. And so they begin to doubt. In your personal life, you may pose one of the greatest threats to completing the task that God has given you by yourself and those doubt. The builders were saying, by ourselves, we will not be able to build a wall. So consider your circumstances. You often say that you cannot overcome the obstacles. The opposition is too much. I can't endure it. But I want you to remember this morning that you do not fight alone. Believe in the promises of God because He is faithful. Believe in the power of the gospel because it is life-changing. Embrace the grace and the mercy of Jesus because it is unending. And then trust in the kingdom that is advancing. Do not trust in your own abilities because you are right in doubting yourself. But trust in God. Don't allow self-imposed doubt to overcome you. Then we see in verse 11, there was a second type of, of this, this opposition that was occurring, this discouragement that came. It was from outside doubters. In verse 11, the enemies of this work basically said, they are not going to get it done. And, and the only way they're going to stop maybe is we just destroy them and stop this nonsense. You know, as you set out to dream big dreams and dare to be impossible and see God do abundantly more than all you can think or ask, you will have doubters who will oppose you. My prayer is that we will stay focused on the goal. Those around our city may look at the task we've set out to complete and say the work is too great. There's no way you're going to be able to make a difference. But we remember that we do not fight alone. Then in verse 12, we see where inside doubters will take place. So there's self-imposed doubt. Inwardly, they're saying, I don't know if we can accomplish the task. There were outside doubters who were saying, let's just wipe these dudes out and stop this silliness. And then there was inside doubters. Ten times other Jews came to Nehemiah's team and said, look guys, this is getting embarrassing. Why don't you just come on back home? Look, it was, it was, it was, it was red for 141 years. What's another 140? Just, this is embarrassing. Y'all just, I mean, if you look, read it, read it. Verse 12 says the Jews who lived near them came and said, look, you must return to us. Think about Job. Job's wife said, we, you know, honey, we just curse God and die. No. Seriously, you're building a boat? Really? And so often, discouragement from the outside will seek to derail what you know that you know that you know that God has called you to do. And often God is going to call us to do things that do not make sense, that seem impossible. And you're going to have people that are going to say, look, this is, this is ridiculous. From within, but you stay focused on what God has called you to do. Because He is faithful. And so we just we, we continue to chase after Him and His plan for us. Because discouragement will come, but stay encouraged. Stay encouraged. Know that Jesus fights for you. He is with you. Then we see in verse 14 another point, and that is that perspective is foundational. That we must not, as we labor, as opposition comes and seeks to shake us, that we do not become so focused on what is opposing us that we lose a proper perspective of God. That in the middle of the word, do you see Nehemiah didn't say, come on guys, we've got to keep working hard. Push. What does he do? He organizes the people. He halted the work. 
and become so consumed with the work and they were weary that he just stopped the work. And he assembled the people together, which in the most common way by their families. And with the people in their full battle gear, with all their swords and everything that went along with it, in verse 14 we see this, with their full battle gear on, Nehemiah stands up and he delivers this wartime speech. And he doesn't say, you have got to keep fighting, pushing. You've got to give it all you've got. What does he say? He says, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Nehemiah pointed the people back to God. So in the midst of weariness and where it looked like it was kind of getting shaky a moment, the wall was going to be finished. He says, you know what? Let's stop the work for just a minute. Everybody got up here. Remember God. He is great and awesome. He fights for us. Remember this. He reminded them that the battle was not just for some abstract wall, but they were fighting for their brothers and their sisters. And just as the Israelites fought for their sons and daughters, wives and homes, we fight to restore a city to saturate in the love of Jesus. Nehemiah and Essence said, are we going to quit or will we worship? That has been abandoned for 141 years continue. Will, the, will this worship, this lack of worship continue because of our unfaithfulness to the call? And look what God does. When the focus goes back on Him, when He redirects and focuses the attention back on God, God frustrates the plans of the enemy. Verse 15 says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall. You see the progression there. They got back centered in on the greatness and glory of God. And then God is saying, now your perspective is correct. And he confused the plan of the enemies, and they went back and got back to work. And I challenge you today, our city that we serve in will not experience worship with the glory of God until his worshipers rise up and continue to work with a proper perspective on the glory of God. And for what end? To build a church? No. But to refocus the attention of the world to the glory of God. We must have a proper perspective as we labor and face opposition. We also see from this text that community is essential. We see this through 15 through 20. They needed teamwork. They needed teamwork. You, know, you and I were never called to fight alone. That's the beauty of community. The great task that Nehemiah challenged God's people to was impossible unless they all chipped in and worked together. You see, people had different tasks. Some had the swords. Some of them were doing both. They, were, they, had, a, they had a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other hand. Everybody had their job. They worked together. This was a difficult undertaking. You know, not only did they have an awesome task of completing this project, but they had an incredible task of fighting off those who sought to attack them physically. But they worked together. They continued the task. These were no trained warriors. No trained construction guys. The list says in chapter 3 that there were goldsmiths. There were perfumers. I have no idea what they did. Spritzing? I don't know. <laughs> there were nobles that said some of the tribes had nobles 
who were, who were who refused to stoop down and be so low as to do the nitty gritty work. And so basically, you can oftentimes have just a normal church go here. But together, they had to pull together for the task. It took people from all different tribes and all different backgrounds and all different skill traits. And isn't that such a foreshadowing of the body of Christ? And everyone in this room, you can say, why gift is not as significant as others? Who's to say? Where is this hierarchy of gifts? God says that his body is like a physical body that you need every single part for it to work and function together. Your gifts are needed. Community is essential. Teamwork is a must as we work together for the advancement of the glory of God. Then we get to verse 21 through 23 and we see that sacrifice is expected. So we're going to face opposition, but in the midst of opposition, you can bet that sacrifice will be expected in following after Jesus. Look at verse 23. Nehemiah, who is the call of the shots on this, he's directing the traffic. Verse 23 says, So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed you. None of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So they did not even take off their clothes, which is great because that would have been awkward working hard environment. But, but what they mean here is that the work didn't stop. From the highest of the shot caller to the lowest of the person doing the wall, they all persistently labored. The work didn't stop. The more opposition they faced, the harder they worked at the task. They said, you're going to oppose our work? That's fine. We just won't stop for a second while we're doing it. We'll keep going. Because God will fight for us. Nehemiah knew that the good hand of the Lord was on him. It took sacrifice. And in our life, it will take sacrifice. We must be careful to not confuse opposition with sacrifice. They're two different things. You will be opposed, but then sometimes God himself will say that you need to sacrifice some things for the sake of following after me. And that's not always opposition. Sometimes that's the calling of God that we sacrifice things. In your personal walk with Christ, when opposition tells you to stop, we continue to work in the power of the Holy Spirit. When the calling to follow Jesus is more than we feel that we can make, we press on, understanding that sacrifice is inevitable. We somehow, along the way, have all into some this truth that when we accept the calling to follow Jesus, we do it on our own terms. That the calling for to Christ is something that we personalize to fit our own level of willingness to sacrifice. But yet Jesus says, I want it all. He says over and over and over again that if anyone is going to come after me, they will deny themselves and they will take up their cross and they will follow after me. We do not come to Jesus on our own terms. And when we come to Jesus on his terms, sacrifice is inevitable. There's a final thing. And one that we will continue to hold high as the motivation behind all things. And that is that God is victorious. That's the good news. The 
The task that we engage in, much like the task that Nehemiah engaged in, is one where victory is certain. We do not fight and labor in the face of opposition because there is, an, uh, there is a chance that Jesus may be overcame. Jesus is victorious. God is victorious. His plan will advance. His kingdom will be restored. The good news of the gospel will spread to all people. Jesus will be proclaimed to all people because God in his plan is victorious. In verse 14, Nehemiah says that God is great. He is awesome. In verse 15, he speaks of the sovereignty of God. In verse 20, he speaks of the faithfulness of God, that our God will fight for us. He knew, and thematically we see through all throughout Nehemiah, that God is victorious and he will fight on our behalf. You are not in this alone. Not only do you have your brothers and sisters, but God is with you. He has empowered you with the Holy Spirit. He has equipped you with this book, which is his word, his God, God breathed. He breathed into existence this word. And he says, this is the truth that you will proclaim. And this is what will be the truth of the kingdom that is advancing that will be victorious. You want to know what I'm like and what my kingdom is like? This is the answer right here. You can trust this. You can trust that God is fighting for you. He has equipped you with the power. He has given you the weapon by which you will encounter the world. The good news of the gospel. And we are to go and know that God will be victorious. And even though he may, you may have setbacks and you may face opposition, you can stand firm in knowing that he is using those for your good. That God will work all things together for your good and for his glory. So this morning, I don't know where your struggles may be. I don't know your trials and your opposition. I know that there are many. I know that you're going through trials. The Bible tells me that. I know that you were experiencing trouble. But my question this morning is how do we properly encounter opposition in our life? Does opposition shut you down? Does it dismantle you? Or do you see the opposition as a guarantee of what the type of life and mission that God will offer you, that as you are serving Him, that you will face opposition. And I'm afraid that for many of us, if you're like me, because this is me, so often opposition can just shut me down. The desire to please can shut me down. And so I know we all have our struggles. So my prayers this morning that we see that God guarantees opposition, but that He is very near to you. That God is with you. Some of you don't know how to find encouragement and discouragement because you truly don't know Jesus. You truly don't know Jesus. And I don't mean just knowing who Jesus is. I mean knowing Jesus. And this morning my prayer is that through this, we will see that God loves you. That even if you do not believe in Him, He loves you. This is love, that, that, that God first loved us, that He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus while we were still sinners to die for us. For some of you this morning, you were shouting across a great chasm 
to try and find God. But the void that you have created as you have moved away from Him seems insurmountable. Let me encourage you this morning that He is very near you. He has not left you. He desires to be back in fellowship with you. If you have allowed opposition and trials to, to derail your allegiance to Him, maybe for some of you in this room this morning, opposition has caused you to question God. To look at God in the face and instead of extending our hands in worship to shake an angry fist at Him and to say, God, why do you let this happen? If you are so good, how could you let this happen? My encouragement for you this morning is that you might see that God loves you, that He has a plan and a purpose for your life. Can I guarantee you good circumstances? No. I guarantee you, God, you will face trouble. But God has overcome. That He was willing to come to earth and wrap flesh around His deity in the form of Jesus Christ and walk the walk that we walk and give His life for us. So that no matter what happens in this life, we know that we, that we have a guarantee in Jesus Christ. Finally, some of you may feel like you're building a great wall alone. Because you are doing this and doing you're trying to serve God without the connection to other believers. I encourage you this morning, you need a church. You need a church family. It's by God's design that we are interconnected in our service to Him together. We need each other. It is God's design and desire to build His kingdom through the love of God. We are a picture to the world of a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. So you see, as we, you need the body of Christ because we are getting a picture to the world about what the kingdom is like that God has restored. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by your love for each other. We are to love and encourage each other for the sake of the kingdom and for the glory of God and for the advancement of this gospel to the ends of the earth. So let's pray together.